I am uh, jumping out of Galatians today. If you've looked ahead at your bulletin, you see that. But um, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about what we've talked about the last couple of weeks in Galatians in terms of bearing fruit, what the Christian life looks like. How do we, how are we to, you know, I don't know. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's easy to look at that as if it's categorical and measurable and quantifiable. And so somehow when we list the fruit of the Spirit and we say that's what what the Spirit's producing in us, that we trip up on, well, what does that mean? What does that mean about the fact that I don't see those things regularly in my life or at times in my life? How do I deal with the fact that I struggle to see those? things or sometimes I see them and sometimes I don't or in some areas of my life I see them but in other areas I don't what do we do about that and I can't answer all of those questions but I want us to um, I think Jeff used the analogy of uh, Galatians there in Galatians 5 kind of slowing down is that right do I remember that correctly actually I want us to look at uh, these questions in more of a motion picture format Instead of this unpacking and puzzle piece reality, we're going we're gonna to basically sort of watch a film, if you will, of how this works. And I want to start, uh, start by introducing it with a song by one of my favorite, I don't know, bands. Um, called, it's a, a group called the Avett Brothers. And this song uh, is called Backwards with Time. It's actually the title of the sermon. But listen, listen to the lyrics of the song. Folks always told me that my heart would grow. The older the man, yeah, the stronger the stone. Am I losing my mind? Am I growing backwards with time? Some say with age that a purpose comes clear. I see the opposite happening here. Are we losing the fight? Are we growing backwards with time? I was young and love was fun. Now it's so serious. Now all the fun has equal pain. There's something wrong with this. For all I know, there's more I don't. Oh, the little that I have learned. For every year of knowledge gain is a negative year I've earned. Folks always told me that my heart would grow. The older the man, yeah, the stronger the stone. Am I losing my mind? Am I growing backwards with time? I, I don't know. That just strikes me as profound. Uh, it strikes me as getting at the very heart of many of our struggles, the many of our questions, uh, that the more we uh, advance or we think we advance or the more we uh, just grow in life, that we, uh, the hopes and dreams, the things that we conceived of don't seem to be adding up. Are we growing backwards with time? How do we deal with this idea that sanctification, if you will, or the ongoing work of God in your life, um, we talk about it as something that progresses, yet what we experience often in our lives is not a sense of progression, but a sense of going backwards. How are we to deal with that? And what happens, the reason I think this is so important is because when we start looking around us and we experience that, I mean, I don't know, this idea that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't, 
how difficult that is, and, and we, we see those things in our lives, or the more we, um, you know, I don't know, parenting is, seems a whole lot more quantifiable and uh, able to uh, pay positive dividends the younger your children are, <laughs> Right? But the older they grow and the more they enter into their own lives and their own struggles, uh, the more complex it becomes. And, and uh, if you're a parent, maybe you've realized that. Maybe you've thought, man, I thought I had this figured out. And now I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Uh, you students here, uh, have you ever thought, I've heard this, this has been said to me, well, I got to college and things that I could have never conceived of doing, I'm doing. I never, I never even thought this would be something that I would have done in my life. And yet here I am. Are we losing our minds? Are we growing backwards with time? We've got to be able to face this question. We've got to be able to deal with it and, and, and answer it honestly. And I think the text before us actually begins to speak to it, certainly. So I ask that if, you're, if you can, ask that you turn over in your bulletin and look at Exodus chapter 13. It's actually 13 and 14. I'm going to read a portion of it. I won't read the whole thing on your, your sheet there. But that's what we're asking. What do we do when it looks like we're actually growing backwards? I ask that you please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Bear with me. It's, it's a, I'm going to read a lengthy section of this. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although this was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying... God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by night and day. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of, uh, whatever this word is, Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. 
And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will have only to be silent. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you. May you make this word true and real and living to us. By the power of your spirit, amen. All right, so um, if you're not familiar with the story, I've preached through portions of the first part of Exodus. I don't know how long ago it was, the last time I preached out of Exodus. And I skipped a portion because I, I, I don't know. I didn't uh, think it was easy to preach the plagues in a one-time one sermon. But if you're not familiar with the story, we, the, the Israelites are under Egyptian rule. They're in slavery. And we're told in the first part of Exodus that the Israelites are fruitful and multiplying. And what we saw when we looked at that, however long ago it was, we saw that actually the language that the writer of Exodus, Moses, wanted us to see was that Israel was actually fulfilling the creation mandate. That they were doing the very thing that God had called his people to do and intended for them to do from the very beginning of creation. And it's that very thing that causes Pharaoh to raise his hand against them and to seek to destroy them as a people. At least uh, so he has uh, their firstborn sons uh, killed, thrown in the river. And so what we looked at and talked about back then, I want to remind you of, is that what we see in this engagement of Pharaoh and God is not simply, um, it's not simply about the deliverance of Israel, though it certainly is about that. It's about this clash of kingdoms. It's, if you will, a God war, a, 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 a war between God himself, the true and living God, and Pharaoh, the God of Egypt, the God of, we might say, or the New Testament might say, the God of this age, this um, God of power and might. And we have this clash of kingdoms that's unfolding in the story of Exodus. And what we have here is now this people having finally escaped after the plagues and the ultimate plague being the Passover. They are now on their way out of Egypt. And that's where we pick up the story. So here's what I want you to just think about as we look at this, as we think about this people. The, the first thing is that they are surely battered, beaten, broken down. 
Uh, everything about uh, their existence over the past with Pharaoh has been harsh and almost unbearable. They have been required to maintain their fully la- their full uh, workload, their quota of bricks, without the proper ingredients for making bricks. They have to go find them them find the ingredients themselves, and Pharaoh brings them under a harsh, harsh labor. And this has to have affected their sense of themselves, their own physical well-being. And then, as they leave, we're told that God leads them out and that they're traveling day and night. That by day they're led by this pillar of smoke and by night they're led by this pillar of fire. And, and the reason is because they're on the run. Uh, they're, they're trying to get out of Egypt as quickly as they can. But there is no rest. There is no time to sit and and, and um Recoup. There's no time. And in these masses are those who are not only beaten down as slaves, but there's the weak among them. There's the, the child among them. There's the invalid among them. There's those who are, are, whose bodies uh, can't make it. And this band is, uh, of people is set out on this journey away from this great force of Egypt. And we get to this place in the text. It actually comes r- right out that... Um, we're told that there's an easier way to go, right? God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. This would have taken them uh, right up the coast of the Mediterranean up into Egypt. It was a direct route. There's a 12-kilometer-wide trade route that they could have followed into Israel, into the Promised Land, into Canaan. But God doesn't lead them by this way of the land of the Philistines And look at the reason why, verse 17, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And that ought to strike you as a bit strange, right? Um, So one, I think we have to ask the question, well, why couldn't God just, I don't know, wipe out the Philistines? (laughs) Maybe. Seems like something that God's powerful and able to do. Uh, Why couldn't God, um, instead of parting the Red Sea, just blow up some kind of dust storm and allow the Israelites to walk through it without ever being noticed by the people who camped along this trade route to create problems for them? He could have done that, but he doesn't. He doesn't take them on this direct path. And I think that question is the question that burns in all of our minds and hearts. See, we can't help but ask in in the Christian life, why doesn't God take me on the direct path? The most most direct path from A to B, by all accounts, is this. Why doesn't God take us there? Instead, he doesn't take them by the direct route. We're told that um, initially, I don't think this is being deceitful. I don't think this is um, asking an unfair question of the scriptures. I do think that God gives this reason to Moses, and this is part of the reason. But it's not the only part of the reason. We see the rest of the reason unfold in the rest of the story. So what do they do? God takes them on this circuitous route through the wilderness. Verse 3 of 14 tells us that um, uh, he gets this 
report that the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. And that word is, is a word that's used for cattle that would be wandering uh, in a place where there was no pasture looking for pasture. Uh, there's, there's a, um, it's used in Joel 3 of cattle who roam about not knowing where they're going. Joel 1, 3, that is not, or yeah, 1, 18, sorry. Joel 1.18, they're wandering in confusion. God takes them on this path that by all accounts is crazy. It's wandering. It's, it makes no sense to, to observation. And then we get to the, the, the passage where they're told to turn back and camp. And what, it, what God has done is he has brought them to this place where their backs are completely against the wall and they're facing not the force of the Philistines, which may have been formidable at the time, but the Philistines were no force in comparison to the Egyptians. He brings them and he tells them to turn back and camp in this place where they are backed up against the wilderness, their backs, uh, their, the wilderness is here, the Red Sea, their backs are to the wilderness, they have no place of escape. Why would God do that? As a matter of fact, we see that Pharaoh observes this, and he decides to send uh, his soldiers after them 600 chariots 600 is a standard military unit unit and uh what we uh think of i want you to imagine what it would look like to have been the israelites to really have we don't know of any report that the egyptians are coming and to look onto the horizon and see the dust that's kicked up by 600 charioteers and their horses and the attending army that would have been with them. And their hearts shrink in the face of this force. The very thing that God um, is calling them away from, he doesn't want them to see the people and change their minds. It's the very thing that the Israelites do as they see the, the uh, encroachment of the Egyptians. They begin to blame Moses and ask him, why is it that you brought us out of Egypt? And we begin to see that as they see the oncoming Egyptians, their confusion is exposed. Their view of reality, their view of what um, it's like, uh, what they're facing, I, I think is skewed. I mean, we, we have to, I guess, understand uh, their question, would it be better to be slaves in Egypt than to die in the wilderness? That's the only options they conceive. They see the circumstance and two options only come to mind. One is death here or at least slavery and life in Egypt. Verse 11 of chapter 14 drips with sarcasm. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? How many of you have been to Egypt? Anybody? What's the one thing you'd want a picture of if you went to Egypt? A grave. 
I mean, Egypt, here's a land known for its graves and obsession with death. If, you, if, you're a, if you're a child of the 80s like I am, you know this because you grew up on Journey. And one of the symbols on every Journey album in the 80s was the scarab. And the scarab is this beetle that the Egyptians used as this picture of reincarnation and, and to uh, symbolize their view of life after death. If you don't know who Journey is, or if you don't think you know who Journey is, you do um, because of rock band. Don't stop believing. Um, so you younger, uh, you younger uh, kids know who Journey is, thankfully. Ex, uh, Egypt, this place that was known, this is what one commentator says, is a land known for its graves, death, and preoccupation with the afterlife. And yet here the Israelites see the circumstances and the two options they run to is death here or life in Egypt. Graves are better in Egypt. We'd rather die in Egypt than die here. And they sarcastically begin to, um, in a sense, mock Moses and ultimately God who he represents. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here. Their thinking um, is locked in on their circumstance. They are cut off. There is no hope of their fighting this force. There is nowhere for them to go. And so in one sense, it looks like they're going backwards it looks like what God has done is he's, he's had this great event, this uh, great uh, Passover event that marks their identity as a people. They think on it. It becomes a part of the natural cycles of their life and, and as, a, as a, a worshiping people. And yet in this circumstance, that's lost. They can't remember that. Because what they see is this army that's marching down on them with all intentions of destroying them and with all the power to do so. And we see their hearts begin to um, lash out, if you will. And here's what I want us to ask ourselves How do we, in our own lives and thinking, do this? How do we look at our circumstances and delineate the obvious two options and then begin to operate as if we've seen the options clearly and that there's no other way out? Maybe I could ask it this way. Um, How do we... Um, how does our thinking get twisted and distorted by our circumstances? If we look at their reasoning, their rationale, it's actually theologically, I'm, I don't know, it makes sense. I, don't, I, I have it, a theological category for wrong thinking. I don't know if this is, uh, I think this does get it the, theological, but if you look at their reasoning in verse 5 and verse 11 of chapter 14, the reasoning of the Israelites mirrors the, ris- the reasoning of Pharaoh. You see that? Um, that? Did I say verse 14 or, or verse 11? Verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done? Pharaoh looks at them wandering in the wilderness and says, 
what, it, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh saying, what is this that we've done to let Israel go from serving us? And Israel's over here saying, what is this we've done that you've taken us away from serving Pharaoh? That actually they're looking at this through, they're looking at these circumstances and they're coming to the same conclusion. It would be better for us to have Israel back in Egypt serving uh, the Egyptians as slaves. They're both thinking the same thing. They've both experienced the Passover event. Pharaoh had his own son die. Their theological thinking is out of whack. The way they think about their circumstances and God in the midst of their circumstances is out of whack. Another way that I think we are just, our, um, thinking gets distorted is a matter of perspective. They can't conceive of any other possibilities. It's either death or Egypt. How many times do we look at a circumstance and, and, and believe that there's no other possibility for us? Sometimes our own, I don't know, brokenness, physical, mental brokenness, clouds our perspective in such a way that as we see what's unfolding around us, we can't conceive of a God who's at work in the midst of it or any kind of concept of deliverance. Now, we, have, we might as Christians have an overarching idea of deliverance but in the midst of it, we think we're trapped and there's nowhere for us to go. We have circumstances that blind us, family crises, stresses of work and school, difficult relationships, just who we are. Our own personal story, the kinds of things that, that uh, have unfolded in our lives that, that cause us to uh, look and perceive things a certain way, we find ourselves coming up with no other options because, because of just who we are. Or maybe because we've been abused or hurt deeply, deeply. And so our perspective takes those things and... Um, makes reality out of them. And that's what the Israelites and the Egyptians actually have done. They've taken the circumstances and they've defined reality by what they can see and perceive. And the last thing I have here is the way we do this is by our own idolatry. We've been talking a lot about idolatry and what it is. I guess what I would say about idolatry in the context of this passage is idolatry is... Um, the, the way our heart engages, it's the, the direction and the momentum of our hearts that takes in this information that's coming at us through circumstances, through our own thinking, uh, through the brokenness of what's ar- around us, through what we can conceive of as pos- the, the possible alternatives. And idolatry takes those things and shapes them and moves in a direction. It moves down a path of thinking. And that thinking is, it's better to die, uh, it's better to live there than die here. That the heart takes those circumstances, um, uh, draws them in, and then starts moving in a direction as it calculates what those circumstances means. I think that's getting at at, uh, how idolatry works. It seizes upon the things in our lives, things that are real, things that are not real, things that are uh, true, uh, true brokenness, true sin, true abuse, true um, all kinds of things, our own particular sin and the ways people sin against us. 
And idolatry takes those and our own misperceptions about what those mean and what's really going on around us. And it takes those and then starts running down a path of what looks like life somewhere else. Or what we might say is a counterfeit answer. And here's what I want us to just see. I mean, it's really obvious in the, in the one sense. It's in Moses' response to the people there in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now, that sounds like, I don't know, Newt Rockney, you know, a good speech, pregame speech that Moses is giving. But, but the Hebrew, actually, the language is more like, shut up and be quiet. Shut up. Stop talking. Just be quiet. Quit living out of... Kids, if your parents tell you not to say shut up, don't. Um... The reality is that Moses is saying, look, stop. Stop. Stop thinking the way you're thinking. Just watch for a minute. Sit there and be silent. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you while you do nothing. While you do nothing. Here's what we've got to see about this whole narrative and about Exodus and about the whole Bible and about your life is that God is, is at work in all of this to bring them to this point so that they understand something deeply true that they don't understand fully, not completely. They haven't embraced it, which is God is actually at work for them to save them. That God is taking them on this circuitous route, not because he doesn't care for them, but because he deeply cares for them. He wants to bring them this to this moment where they're, they're at the end of themselves and they realize that they've got nowhere to go and that even the ideas that they have about what uh, it looks like to escape this reality are wrong and God is going to save them. And the problem for many of us in the Christian life is we get to those box canyons, if you will. I mean, I picture this, those westerns where you see that you're looking down from the top of the canyon and you see the horses riding into this deep wall canyon and you know they're in for an ambush, right? You know, you're like, don't go in there. The bad guys are waiting for you. And God leads them to this box canyon, this place where there's nowhere else for them to go. He hems them in, if you will. So that they can understand who he is for them. So that they can actually sit and watch and observe the God who saves when nothing else can be done. The other thing that he's showing them is escape isn't simply getting out. But it is judgment on the enemies of the kingdom of God. See, some of you may pull back at that idea. Some of you who have been abused and cry out for justice in your life need to hear that the forces of darkness that have brought abuse and into your life or neglect into your life will be put down by the living God. 
that justice will come, that you can rest in the God who is just. God hems them in. He brings them to the brink so that they can see his deliverance for them. There's this, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm copying this illustration from a friend, so I don't have this illustration from firsthand knowledge. So if you want to call me on it, fine. But there's this uh, documentary that, uh, about a, an Olympic champion from one of the uh, uh, Norwegian countries. And um, this boy, when he was 10 years old, uh, skied night and day before class, after, before school, after school. His father owned the one ski lift in town, and he skied all the time. And when he was 10, at the age of 10, he was, I don't know, 12 inches shorter than the next tallest kid in his class. And then one day skiing, he breaks his leg. And, you know, he's in the body cast. He's laid up for several weeks. And when he gets back from rehab, he's actually two inches taller than everybody else in his class. He's grown 16 or 14 inches in 16 weeks. Wow. How's that possible? Well, the way it's possible, the reason this happens is because this boy spent so much of his energy skiing night and day that his body didn't have the energy to grow. And it wasn't until he stopped, until his leg was broken, until he could do nothing else, that he grew. And God hems the people in. He brings them to this place where they've got nowhere to go. They're stuck. And it's here that they see who their God is in a new way. It's here that they understand something about the God who um, loves them and has redeemed them. It's here that they understand what it means to be the people of God. And see, what's interesting about Exodus is, uh, I mean... You know, they get across the Red Sea and you think that would be it. They would be great and good. And we're like, okay, God, you got us. We're in. And they don't. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. How many of you have wandered, not wandered, but wandered, not wandered, but wandered? (laughs) Yes. Whether or not the Israelites that died in the wilderness were really saved since they didn't make it to the promised land, right? You ever wondered that? The reason you wonder that is because you think that, that, uh, that the, what's going on between God and Israel is this, look, you guys, if you'll just keep my, keep my rules, we'll be good. If you'll just obey me and believe me and trust me whenever it comes to whatever circumstance, if you'll just follow the rules, we'll be good. And you think that the wilderness wandering is a result of badness. It is, right? In one, in one sense. But I don't think that's what's going on there. Do you realize that Moses dies in the wilderness? So if the rest of the wilderness are out, out of the kingdom, Moses is out of the kingdom. 
See, what's going on in the wilderness in this wandering and this route that God takes people through, his people through, is he's taking this band of, of slaves, this band of broken people, this band of people who have no ability and power to overcome the circumstances that are set before them, their own sin, their own fears, their own confusion, their own brokenness, and he parts the waters and they walk through on dry ground. He makes a way for them. He brings them to places where they've got nowhere else to go, where he forces them to stop. But the stopping isn't so that they'll get their acts together. The stopping is so that they can see the God who loves and has saved them. Do you see that? Do you see that the circumstances in your life aren't Ordered by God, which they are ordered by God, but they're not ordered by God so that you'll um, get your act together. Believing isn't something that you work up from uh, enough appropriate negative consequences that you say, okay, I'll believe God now. That's not what happens. Look at the end of the story. I didn't read this, but... The Lord said, verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. See, they see something about their God and his power and his might in their lives. And that leads them to faith. So part of the process of wandering through the wilderness is God walking in relationship with his people, leading to them to places where they can grow and understand and trust in who he is. I'm preaching through Hosea um, on Wednesday nights, and it's this other imagery. Here the imagery of this divine warrior that baits basically the enemy of Israel into chasing them down so that he can show his power not only to the Egyptians but to his people. In Hosea the imagery is of a lover, a husband whose wife is unfaithful, whose wife chases after Man after man after man, breaking his heart. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, if if we knew of a, a marriage like the one that's pictured in Hosea, we would tell the guy to get out. It would bring shame upon him and his circle of friends. They would look at him and say, why do you stay with that woman? And yet, God does. He stays with that woman. He puts up with the complaining of Israel. He delivers them, never giving them what they deserve. Always leading them through this process to the brink of the promised land. Now the reason I think that It's the brink of the promised land. We need to understand that is because the promised land was never about a plot of land in the Middle East. It was about the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth. 
the story here shows us that God is at work in our circumstances to bring us not just negative consequences so that we get our act together, but in relationship to teach us who he is for us, that he loves us, that he's our deliverer, that he's our savior, that we cannot do this on our own, but yet he has done it for us. The Christian life will make no sense if we don't understand this. God works for Israel even though their faith is questionable. God delivers against all human odds. And God delivers in and for the sake of relationship. And I think that's what we miss about the God who is powerful to save. He doesn't simply um, teleport you out of your troubles. He enters them in Christ and is with you so that you know who he is. So that you know that he's not simply just, but he's loving. That he's not simply king, but he's father. That he's not simply king, but he's lover. I know that weirds some of you out to think about God that way, but it's a clear metaphor in the scriptures. I know, I get that. But that's, that's the relational kind of language that the scriptures use of this relationship that God is teaching his people that he has in, uh, between them and desires to make real, to make lived out in your life. So the appearance of growing backwards with time uh, may be appearance, Or it may be that God is actually moving you in directions you could have never conceived because he's trying to get you to a dead end and get you to realize that you've got nowhere else to go and your only hope is to trust in him. If you find yourself in that place, pray to God. Ask him to show you his love and his mercy for you in that situation. Pray and ask him to deliver you from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if not, pray and ask him to help you to see that his love and his mercy is for you there. And that the cross of Christ has um, clearly demonstrated how the love of God leads you through the circumstances of your life. Another quick application. Quit thinking about sanctification or the Christian life as if it's linear. This passage shows us that it's not. The direct route may be taken, but it's not necessarily taken. And the reason is because there's something else at stake here than just getting from point A to point B. What's at stake is your knowing and loving the living God who saves you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you do love us that you uh, have delivered us from our enemy and that you lead us uh, in all circumstances, that you're with us, that sometimes uh, you deliver us through circumstances, sometimes you hem us in and uh, bring us to the end of ourselves and our own understanding. Lord, I pray that we would trust that the... um, sometimes messiness and confusion that we experience in the midst of all of this. Pray that we would understand in the midst of that, that you love us. That in Christ and his cross, you have delivered us. We have crossed over. 
and yet we still live in the time between. You bring us to the brink and ultimately will bring us to the new heavens and new earth. Lord, teach us to trust you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.